Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man, Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone is keeping safe in the world right now. Hi everybody, Matt Guy here. Hope everybody is splendidly... Splendidly what? Okay, qu'est-ce que c'est? So, I hope everyone is splendidly, and then I thought you were going to say something else. No, spent splendidly, like in the Ned Flanders. Oh, splendidly. <laughs> so the, the old connection there. Well, hello, everyone. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. Just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Fellas, it's our 100th podcast, I believe, that we are here to celebrate. <laughs> this is the word. Not that it's anything different to what we normally do, but yeah, 100 podcasts deep at this point, which is fucking insane, really, to think that it's been just under two years. That is. I remember you texting me. I was working from home at the time saying, how would you feel about doing a podcast? Like, I'm just floating an idea around and blah, blah, blah. And obviously, we were knee deep in fan cast stuff as well at the time. You know, we were doing fan cast as well. Um, and here we are, yeah, nearly two years down the line. Um the only difference is I've moved from the box room to the garage. You've been demoted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've just got more wires and more screens now to look at than before. But yeah, I mean, I mean, really, it was probably a year before that that we started talking about something like this. Um, I and mean, so some kind of geek-based um, film podcast of some kind. We'd have a former of or any kind of base around it then, though. And that's why you took mm. another year before it came to pass. But yeah, to me, two years, does not. it does not seem like two years at all. It really doesn't, does it? Like, like in some respects, it feels like it's always been this, but at the same time, it also feels like it's still a new podcast somehow. It, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. So, like, when we was... Um, I just went back to listen to the a little clip of the... Um, one where we, where we start with National Treasure with um, Uncharted coming out the other week, and thinking back, and like I still remember stuff that we were talking about even then, and that that you don't really remember conversations you had two years ago, but that one like stuck in my mind. I think maybe because it was the first or whatever, but even so, it's still recent enough, but at the same time, so long ago. Yeah, but at the same time, I I was trying to think of the name of that film which started off with a woman getting raped, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it was called. And that wasn't that long ago, so there are films that I've completely scrubbed from my memory already. I, I still oh, can't what remember was that film. It was the one where Cage was the cop, and then he was exacting his revenge on the the men. Oh, with the really awful kid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking it was that one where he's he was getting blackmailed, and he had to like find the tape, and he ended up jumping over a dual carriageway. What else? <laughs> yeah, <else>. yeah. <laughs> oh, vengeance, a love story was yeah. the one. Oh, that, um, that's it. Yeah, yep, 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 which yep. was a, a bit of a shocker, and I, I can't remember the one that you were just on about either. So th- there are these films that have sort of come and gone, and they're somewhere in the back of the memory, but just no idea. <laughs> Like that There's one. Still plenty to go. So you say you, you you you're more likely to remember the film about a woman being impregnated by a car than uh, than this. Yeah, you don't see that very often, do you? So yeah, that one stays with you. <laughs> right. So we're here. It's a top fives episode, and we're going to be doing our top five favorite 
best comedy performances. There's no real rules to this. You just have to pick an actor and a film or maybe if it's an ensemble cast, just something that you think is worthy of praise. So it's going to be our top fives, five to two honourable mentions. Then we'll give our number ones. Um, I'll start off then, Matthew, and then Stuart. My first one, and the reason this is fifth, is because it's not a comedy film, but I think that Jonah Hill in The Wolf of Wall Street is a comedy masterpiece. I think he's Mm. absolutely phenomenal in that film. And that film is such a heavy, a lot of nonsense about stocks and trades and shit like that, that you do need that bit of levity, and Jonah Hill brings it with a plum. Just... Like whenever I think of that film, the first scene I remember of him of him is him standing in the middle of that party wanking whilst um Leo DiCaprio is chatting to Margot Robbie's character because he's so hammered that he doesn't realise he's in this crowded room. And like it just gets crazier from there, like with the scenes where they're on the ludes and stuff. And I just think he brings a complete different look at that movie. I think without him, that film, like, it'd still be great because it's Scorsese, but I don't think it would be as rewatchable as it is without um, without Jonah, personally. Mm. Yeah, he, um, what he gives, he, he's, he, because he's, like, trying to be deadly serious in it, but in this ridiculous situation that he's in, he actually becomes hilarious. Like, even though he's sometimes trying to be proper straight-laced in that, in that film, um, but he is really, really good in it. I think like the way he talks about like his cousin who he is trying to justify why he's like having sex with his cousin. <laughs> he does it really well. <laughs> he does, yeah. <laughs> it's the scene where he, he first gets his teeth done as well. I don't know why he just when he's got that big shit eating grin on his face and he looks like an imbecile. It's just so funny. It's excellent. No, I was gonna say I mean I'm I, it's one of the films I've seen once and once only. And I really, really do need to watch it. Yeah, uh, maybe because it's so long as well that it kind of you mm. got to find find the time to fit it in. I might do that when the playoffs are over, actually, because there's a lot of films like that where I need to go and watch them again. Because I know I wasn't as excitable as about it than everyone else was at the time, and I think I've, this is one I've messed up, and I know I have. <laughs> Matthew, what's your number five, please? So it would be um, the ensemble cast um, of Anchorman. Um, so Anchorman, it, it draws that, that fine line between, you know, g- just being generally funny for what it is and, and the cast, but it also having like mass appeal in terms of like, you know, everybody's seen Anchorman. There's nothing niche or, or, or cult about Anchorman. It's, it's, it's just huge. But the, the different... I, don't, I mean, I don't think Paul, it wasn't like a breakout performance for Paul Rudd. He was, you know, he was already famous before that, but he was thrust into the mainstream for a lot of people in this. Will Ferrell was obviously very big before that. Um, Steve Carell as well. Um, and it's just, it's just a fantastic performance of all these larger than life characters that come together and just completely embrace the ridiculousness of the situation that they're in. And they all have their own, you know, their own issues and their own foibles and everything else and their flaws. But the the way that they come together is just hilarious. And it's one of these things where I know it sounds silly. The measure of how funny a film is sometimes is if you look at like the bloopers and you look at how much fun they're having on set 
And if you look at the, like the blooper reel for Anchorman, like they are just literally having a ball all the time. Like you can really tell this film was made with, you know, they really enjoyed the process of it. And I think that shows on screen from the whole cast. Yeah, 100%. I think it's a phenomenal film. And I love how each one of the, the, the four different main characters, even five if you throw Christina Applegate, I know she's not an improv actor the same way the other four are, but they all bring their own style of comedy. And sometimes that can that can clash when you've got different people doing different things. But somehow, this is just magic. It all just works together perfectly and it brings the best out in each other. Wonderful. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it's, it says everything where you've got that, what is it, in, is it Anchorman 1.5 or something like that, where the outtakes that they're making to another film, yeah. because everyone was having so much fun and because there was so much content and it was all funny. I think that that says a lot as well. Yeah, very good choice. What's your number five, Stu? Well, <laughs> there's no judgment in this because this is all down to... You, I can't be laughed at or mocked for once. We'll see. Oh, <laughs> I went with things that made me belly laugh. So they're not going to be the best films. Well, maybe one is. Um, they're not going to be the most classy films. But in terms of the performances of these people in these films where I was close to needing a change of shorts, because most, <laughs> most of them are watching the summer, apart from one. Number five is Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura. And the, fir- the first one, not, not so much the second, um, Pet Detective, where I'd never seen anything like it before. You, you come out at of growing up and you, we didn't really see films like this with people so flamboyant and over the top who weren't gay. And you, you come into this creature that he's kind of, that he's playing and you think, what the hell is this? And it just spawned, I mean, everyone did the whole thing. Everyone did impressions of it in the playground and people still do it now. And we had it for years and years and years and people doing the mannerisms and the facial movements. And it, it's just incredible. And I know we've said it since we said it a few weeks ago where the um, he's Dr. Robotnik in Sonic. He's kind of channeling his performance in these films um, a little bit, but nothing comes close to the absolute madness of it all. It's just superb. For me, you don't need to prefix what you've just said with... I'll be, you know, I'm going to take some shots at this because that film is excellent. There is no mocking you for that choice. It was on my list up until like five minutes before I finalised it. I love it. I, I was such a big Jim Carrey fan, purely off the back of Ace Ventura. As you said, there was nothing quite like it. Not for you know people of our age. I mean, I'd have been it was '94. It was released. So I'd have been about eleven-ish, and it felt like it was something new and fresh. And I feel like we've had some comedians come on since, sort of like you Will Ferrells and that, who've tried to take on this larger-than-life silliness that Jim Carrey bought. And I don't think anyone has really hit home quite as well as Jim Carrey has for that type of comedy. So my number four is Melissa McCarthy in Bridesmaids. I love Bridesmaids. I think it's, it's... it's not even an underrated gem because it's a film that everyone genuinely seems to love. And it's got some proper heavyweight actors in there with Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, 
like very, very funny women who have done all your Saturday Night Lives and all these great films before her. And then this relative unknown, or she was at least unknown to me. I, I never knew who Melissa McCarthy was until this film. And she comes in and does, she does the jokes that it's always historically been the boys that have done it. Like when she shits herself at the, um, when she does the, is it the, the dress fitting, isn't it? It was so, I say refreshing, that's not quite the right <laughs> word. It was so unique to see a woman come in and just absolutely hit a home run, almost out of nowhere. I mean, there might be people out there who knew who she was before, but for me, she, it, that was new. It was fresh, and I thought she was fantastic. So, yeah, Melissa McCarthy, I think. She stole the show in a film with a bunch of actors who I really like. So, yeah, two thumbs up for that performance, personally. Do you think it's... Because, you know, right and for, for all the right reasons, um, you know, Bridesmaids opened the door for a lot of female-led comedy in the mainstream, but from an American side of things. Why is it that the UK hasn't caught up, do you think? Because if you was to if you was to say to Joe Bloggs in the street or do Family Fortunes on female comedians in film, like for the UK, from the UK films, I don't think you'd be anywhere near as many people that would be interested in, in you know in something mainstream. Why are we so far behind? It's a very good question. Like I'm struggling to think of comedic actors, uh, female comedic actors. There's no one who immediately springs to mind i mean we what, had... what i mean is you've got like you've got like you know uh, the ailing what's a face who's always on channel four and like uh, eight out of ten cats and stuff like that you've got comedians that yeah. do films but you don't really have comedic actors that are just not comedians in film if that makes any sense mm. um we don't have a lot of it in the uk i don't know why that is no because i mean I, um ashley b isn't it um like she's yes. she's a really good funny actor, and she's also like a really good like serious actor as well. She can bring it in both guns. But whenever you see her, I think in film, and the same with Sharon Horgan, who obviously played Nick Cage's wife in the, the recent Unbearable Weight, um, they tend to go and do American films and do their funny shit. I can't think of a, a British produced film which has had a really strong female actor in there. I, it's a good question. I honestly don't have an answer for I mean, it. I mean, the only TV show in recent memory that I can think of really is Derry Girls. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? In that, you know, that is really hammered home that, you know, the female, strong female-led cast. It, it, it's, it's, it's odd, really, because, you know, we're very much in this country proud of, of, of our heritage when it comes to, like, filmmaking. And we're very serious and we do, we do all the good things that we can um, for film. And mm. we've seen that way across the world. But actually, when it comes to... When it comes to in, in inclusivity for comedic actors, we don't we're not quite there. I think part of it is the writers, because it's very rare that there's good or I said not good um, that female writers get given the opportunity to do what male writers do, and like with all due respect, male writers don't write female characters all that well. To be perfectly honest. Mm. So you look at, um, as you've just said, Derry Girls, which is Lisa McGee, I think, is the writer on that one. Um, you've got This Way Up, which is Ashling B wrote that with Sharon Horgan. That's a really good, funny, but also quite serious mental health um, sitcom. And you've got, was it not? Yeah, you've got Crashing, Fleabag. You've got all these really good things that are female-led now. 
but we are so far behind. Like this is only within the last four or five years. Whereas obviously we've had women who've been around for a lot longer than the last four or five years. They've mm. just never been out. They've never got in the room, which is a big issue. I mean, there is the thing that it takes something exceptional for me to find women, female comedians, funny anyway. So and. It, it, that's not me being slightly like ban them all or whatever. I mean, you have. I was thinking then about the um, the the last Poirot film, whatever that was called. Um, Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile. That had French and Saunders in it, acting together yet again. Um, but it does seem that you had all that you had them. You had Victoria Wood, like eighties, early nineties, and nothing since. <laughs> And that was that was all TV based stuff as well. I mean, what we had since fucking Miranda. And that, that's that's about it. Other than like you said, Fleabag, which I I do like Fleabag to be fair. Um, but there isn't a lot at all. And I, when things like eight out of ten cats, it's very rare that when there's comedians on there, you probably can't say that anymore, can you? When there's female comedians on there, I don't laugh at them. I just I don't know why. It just it doesn't hit for me. This one, Bridesmaids, did. But the the Ghostbusters thing, I had no interest whatsoever at all. And that yeah, was just... dropped a bollock with that one, I think. Yeah. So I think it's it's been picky and having an audience where is there an audience there for it? We can, we can be as inclusive as we want, but I, I mean, I'm just saying personally, it, it, they don't make me laugh. Very rarely they make me laugh. I don't know why that is. It's just one of them things. So... Maybe there's there's more more to it than meets the eye. Really, we could do a whole podcast on this. Write it down. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just wait for the incoming Tara abuse because that's what's going to happen. We all know this. <laughs> I think the thing is, Stu, when you see a male comedian telling jokes, you can immediately identify with them because obviously we're also males. But with a female comedian, there's still fifty percent of the entire universe that yeah. would be able to identify with them. The problem is they haven't catered to a wider audience. It's generally, especially if you go back through like, maybe 10 years ago on those panel shows, they were mostly white males on there. So they very much pitched it to one specific audience and not other people. They have sort of tried to redress the balance a little bit now, which I think is good and that they do get people of different ethnicities and obviously different genders. So I, I think they're trying to make it a bit more... You might not enjoy this week, but you'll enjoy next week because it's got this one. And they try and make it for, for everyone, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, number four for you, please, Matt. Well, speaking of um, speaking of gender and uh, all the things that come with in between, what's wrong with being sexy? It'll be <laughs> Christopher Guest in uh, as Nigel Tufnell in Spinal Tap. Now... Of the three of the main characters there, I think Christopher Guest's character as Nigel Tufnell is probably the most complete performance out of all of them. The one that gets the most kind of character development, I guess, because whilst he's like a Tim Nice but dim, he also is the most diva-ish out of the three. And he's also got an incredible amount of heart. At the same time, you know, he'll write this beautiful, po- poetic ballad and then it's called lick my love pump <laughs> you know what i mean but then he'll, he'll kick off about having like pitted olives and stuff like that and, and and ham that won't fit the size of the crackers in the dressing room it's just such a 
funny, funny, funny performance, which she's like highlights everything that you expect about rock and roll and what, what that lifestyle is like and how prima donnas they all are. Um, and it's, it's weird to say he's the comic relief because it's a, it's, it's a funny film anyway, but he's the more slapstick style of the comedy of the three of them. When Harry Shearer is talking, it's all very deliberate in the way he speaks and the words he uses. And he's just, he's funny without having to be slapstick. Um, whereas Christopher Guest, he, what he does, he's just, you see his character, his mannerisms, you smile without him saying a word. And I think his performance in Spinal Tap is, is the highlight for me of the three of them. Mm. I, I love the scene and it, it always puts a smile on my face. The one you've just mentioned about the, the ham being too, or the bread being too small for the ham. Because you see him crack in that scene. <laughs> You see, he just goes to laugh and then he, he manages to pull it back in. And I think that is such... The restraint he had to stifle that laugh gets me every time. It's fantastic. And yeah, I, I'm, I don't I'm, know... I'm, I'm sure he even says something like, you've just got to laugh, you've just got to laugh, like or something like something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. I'm trying to try and rein it back in. And then I don't know why it's not on my list, because it is great. I think the only reason that it, I didn't put it on my list in the end was because, like... You've got that. You've got Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind, Best in Show. Like, he's got so many absolutely incredible performances. I mean, he's Guffman. He's, it is hilarious. Like, it's so good. And I just didn't feel that. I didn't want to pick one film, mm-hmm. especially because of someone I've got later coming up is one of the reasons. But, yeah, he, he's just a, a genius. I, I don't think there's any other word for it. He's a comedic genius. Uh, number four for you, Stu. Talking of comedic geniuses, um, this is another one and another character who became instantly quotable, uh, instantly copied for fancy dress, and it's Mike Myers in Austin Powers. And again, for some for for someone who's not from here, well, not a, not a British national. Let's just say that because obviously where he was born or whatever, um, to completely take the piss and mock the Bond films like he does and to absolutely nail it and then put the that performance in and play as almost a straight-faced straight in parts, but then in the same time being utterly ridiculous. And these films, the first two especially, still hold up even now which I was astonished at when I went back and watched them last year. I thought, oh, these are going to have aged terribly. But they really haven't. If anything, it's it. so some of the stuff in the first one, you think this wouldn't actually look out of place to actually be happening now. <laughs> um, <laughs> other than silly secret island hideaways and whatever, but even that, who knows. But I thought it, it was just, again, I mean, Coming when it did, probably at the right time for that kind of thing to come out, and it shaped a lot of things. And it, it I've got it in the honourable honourable mentions as well. The kind of the rise of the spoof film around about that time. That this started it all, and it was Mike Moore's performance mm-hmm. as Austin Powers, and then you got his performance as the other characters as well later on, um, but mainly as Austin Powers himself. I thought it was wonderful. I. I think I preferred the second film, like when it was out. I think the second one was my favourite of the three. But I don't think I've seen it for about 15 years at this point. So 
I might have to revisit it, especially now you've said that it still holds up after all this time. Well, some Matt Guy trivia here. Um, Goldmember is the film that holds the record for the most amount of times I've been to the cinema to go see it. At a startling four <laughs> times. <laughs> wow. Hmm. I just I don't know why. Like I've got no idea why. I just remember like at the time I was going with like in four different like groups of people, including my little brother. Um <laughs> and like <laughs> don't know what he just is. I, I, I mean, I'm gonna have to rectify that sooner or later, but uh but yeah, bit of trivia for you. Incredible. Uh back to me. My number three is one of the few perfect films. It is School of Rock and it is Jack Black as Mr. Schneebly, wasn't it? it was his, um, Schneebly, yeah. Ned Schneebly. Yeah. Just such a wonderful film. Like, properly heartwarming and beautiful and just gives you the warm and fuzzies. Like, it's such a great movie. And he's a very, very big reason why. Because generally speaking, like, we've, how many times have we said that films with kids in are generally shit? The kids are awful. But... Even if they were awful in that, I feel that Jack Black's larger-than-life performance in that movie, it would overshadow them to the extent that you wouldn't necessarily notice that they were bad. They all sort of did what they needed to perfectly, which was just to facilitate Jack Black's madness. And I feel that Jack Black has never quite done anything as good as this, but this film gives him the free reign to do whatever the fuck he wants because you know that he's still got this in his locker. I think it's a travesty that he didn't actually get Oscar nominated for this movie. I think it's such a really good performance. I think that the, the, what the beauty of School of Rock is that, like the majority of my list, there is some form of smut or swearing or something because that's what I enjoy. That's what I find funny mm-hmm. in comedy. But there's absolutely none of this. Like there is no age group that I don't think this is inappropriate for, or there's no audience that I don't think would I don't think you need to know the ins and outs of Ride the Lightning by Metallica to enjoy this film either. I don't think I don't think there's an I think this is incredibly universal this film. Do you know what I mean? It's about an outsider wanting to be accepted and a group of outsiders all coming together to stick it to the man. Quite yeah. literally. Yeah. Um and it's, it's beautiful, it, 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 but it is hilarious at the same time. Don't let the sentiment and the, the like the meaning of it take away from like this genuinely laugh out loud moments in it. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen it, Stu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But another one. I think. I'll, when was that in relation to Tenacious D? Bringing about the similar, similar kind of time. I think it was so, a year or two before, was it? So Tenacious D were going way, way, way before mm. Tenacious D were in the Tribute, mainstream. Yeah. So I think it was it would have been post because they were on like Saturday Night Live and everything. I think it was post that, and it was post High Fidelity and etc. But um, I think it was probably before it was like well before the Pick of Destiny, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's two thousand and three. School of Rock was released, um, and Pick of Destiny was two thousand and six. Yeah. So I, I saw it on I saw it on DVD after listening to that album. Um, I went on a bit of a, a Jack Black kind of bender, so to speak. And then you, the the, uh, the game as well that he, he was in. Um, oh, yeah. The the heavy metal game that he did. I can't remember what it was called. Right? Overlord? No. Um, I can't remember what that was called. Brutal actually. Legend. Brutal Legend, that's yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Which is available. You can. Oh, it's on Game Pass, amazingly. Um, and the, what was the other one as well in the, in the video shop? 
I'll be kind, be rewind. Kind, yeah. Now, yeah. if we ever do a top five on most underrated or under, not underrated, but underappreciated films, either The Pick of Destiny, Nacho Libre, or Be Kind, Rewind could be on that list. You know, I've never seen Nacho Libre, <gasps> which, as a wrestling fan, what? I don't understand how I've not watched it. I think it's, it's because the reviews were so bad that I never. Yeah, the thing the thing was though, it it, it had an element of um, what the fuck's it called? Uh, the one with Pedro on the t-shirt. Napoleon Dynamite. It has an it has a, like an element of Napoleon Dynamite about it, a bit of like abstractism. Where mm. It's like you either get it or you don't. Okay. It had a bit of that about it, and I think that threw a lot of people. Like there's some some of it is just. A bit too out there, not like zany or or like mm. LSD trip. But we like you, if you just if you didn't find it funny, you're never going to find anything about it funny. Whereas okay. I found it very very funny. Right, I, I I do need to give it a go because it's a film about wrestling for crying out loud. <laughs> just makes sense. <laughs> okay, so Matthew, number three. It's not been mentioned for a while, however. Uh, well, Stu, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the description of it, and I want Stu to tell me who who and and what it is. I want to tell you about the perfect physical performance in film, a comedic physical performance where everything that this character does, everything is so meticulously thought about ahead of time, but looks so effortless, and yet this person barely needs to speak. And they're absolutely hilarious in everything that they do. Stu, what film am I talking about? Being the Great Disaster Movie. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> yes. Correct. And I'm and I'm spot on as well, aren't I? Because hundred percent. Because as a physical performance, Rowan Atkinson is tremendous in in being the Ultimate Disaster Movie. He's like everything that he does is with his body and. I've talked about it before when he's pulling the gun out in the airport and he's shaking and he puts the gun down on the floor <laughs> and stuff like that. And when he's flipping people off in the cars as he's going past. And even when like he pulls the masks down and waves when he's, when he's like somehow blagged his way to be a doctor in the hospital, just everything that he does is so slapstick and so encapsulates what the Americans thought British comedy was about. And it's, it's a joy to watch. It really is a joy to watch. Like, it's just one of those things where I think you do have to you do have to enjoy that to enjoy this. It's it's not universal. Like I don't think everybody can find this this funny as as Andy has made painfully clear on a few occasions. <laughs> but I think for those that enjoy that physical comedy element, I think it, it's 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 really great performance from him. Yeah, and uh, every time I, you don't hear it on radio very often anymore, but picture of you is it just instantly makes me smile. Hearing that song because of this film, it's just what it's just. It, it should be diagnosed for people with depression because it's 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 such an uplifting load of nonsense. I don't know how you can not smile at when you're watching it. It's just funny. It's just it's nice and it's warm and it's it's not offensive in any way whatsoever. Anyone can watch it. It's just it really is wonderful. And he's sitting there all glum. There's, you know, it's been so long since I've seen it. I think I've seen it once. I've just got nothing to say because I don't remember it. I think I've seen the the sequel a couple more times, and it it just it never did it for me. 
Mr. Bean's holiday is okay. It's okay. It's as good, you know, it's 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 fine. It's fine. That's all I can say about it, to be mm. fair. It's not my type of humour, so I think that's why I just never never really gave it the time of day, personally. Uh, so, number three for you, Stu. I was just going to say before that, how many episodes do you think were made of Mr. Bean? Like, like the standard one before it went animated? Yeah. Like, I don't think that many. Like, I thought it was like a Faulty Towers kind of thing. Very similar. But- 15. Which, you think... It must have because it was on. It was on for five years, so they must. It must have just been made and then had a year off for him to do other things, and then similar because mm. kind of, mm. he was obviously still doing Blackadder at the start. Um, yeah, only fifteen episodes. Incredible, really. Um, but it feels like it. It's probably because it was stretched out over such a long period of time that it, it feels like it was uh, always on TV back then as well. Yeah. And because we had like five channels, and it was yeah, <laughs> but like he was in the mainstream though, because he was on like Blind Date and and like stuff like that. Like they'd always have him in doing other things in other shows. So yeah. like, like it, it was it was mm. big, it was big. But then then again, so was Savile. So I suppose we don't really know <laughs> about the TV back then, do we? <laughs> Not what to judge it on, I guess. Yeah, my my number three is nothing to do with Jimmy Savile, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but is. The only, well, the only really buddy cop kind of uh, buddy comedy on this thing, on this list for me, and it's John Candy and Steve Martin in Planes, Trains and Automobiles. It's just both of them. I couldn't, you can't separate, you can't have one without the other. They just work perfectly together. And it's played so seriously (laughs) for so long. And Steve Martin is going to slowly unraveling into madness of what he's doing to him. Just completely innocently as well. He's not trying to be an arsehole or to wind him up. He just is that annoying. And we've all got people like that. We all know people like that. I mean, I'm sure I am like that for certain people. Um, But it just works. And I watched it last year for Thanksgiving. um, Thanksgiving week. I hadn't seen it for years. And I I loved it even more last time I watched it than I had for... Any of the other times, maybe a bit of bit of time away from it and letting it breathe a bit, and being older and appreciating it a bit more. But both of their performances in this, in this film are absolutely superb. I don't think I've seen it for such a long time, mm. but I, I always loved John Candy as a kid. Like Uncle Book, he's like now that is an an underappreciated film. Like it just doesn't get mentioned anymore for some reason. There was a time when everyone loved it. It's probably because it was Macaulay Culkin. And obviously the rise of the Kulk back in the, the 90s, everyone knew about it, but it's sort of fallen to the wayside. But yeah, Uncle Buck for me was like one of my favourite films growing up. I, I just love the scene where he, he tosses the quarter to that teacher and tells her to buy a rat to gnaw that mole off her face. <laughs> I just love that scene. But yeah, John Candy, phenomenal. Early Steve Martin, brilliant. Steve Martin's films around the time of... Father of the Bride, it's almost like he just stopped doing comedy. He was still in comedic films, he just wasn't funny in them. But anything <laughs> before then, he was excellent. So yeah, great choice. So back to me, and this is the reason why I didn't pick Christopher Guest, because there's another actor who's done a handful of films that I wanted to give recognition to. 
The three characters that he played were Ed, Danny and Andy in Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and The World's End. I think Nick Frost is absolutely fantastic in those three films. Obviously, he is the comedic relief. He's the sidekick in it. It's all about Simon Pegg. He's the, the main man. He's he's very funny and what have you that comes with that. But I do feel that he's he's only allowed to be as good as he is because Nick Frost is there. So Sean can be a bit of a no-hope and a loser because he's got Ed there who is the absolute worst. Like he's the, the bottom of the pile when it comes to it. You've got... Um, in Hot Fuzz, Simon Pegg can be this badass cop because he's got this dipshit uh, Danny with him who he's trying to pick him up by his bootstraps and pull him along. And then in The World's End, Gary King, it's almost like the roles have reversed once we've hit this point as well. So Gary King is this bit of a no-hoper. And then you've got Andy who has become this, this big businessman when everyone else around him has sort of failed a little bit. And it allows Simon Pegg to be that off the rails and everything because for once now, Nick Frost has been the straight man in there. And I think it works so well. I love the fact that his three characters are also distinctly different, but it's a really good arc of a character going from a loser to a winner. So just looking at his performances alone in those three films, I think are tremendous. So yeah, hats off to Nick Frost. I think he's fantastic in those films. Why do you why do you think he's not been able to shake off and and go completely on his own? So obviously you know he was in Attack the Block. He wasn't you know the main the main the main man mm. in that. He's he's done a handful of other things. Obviously he was in Fighting with My Family. He's good in that. Truth Seekers. Uh, anyway, um, but what like what do you think he's? Do you think being the psychic has just hampered him in terms of just being the main man in a, in a film, or, or or do you think he's you know it's he, he, a bit beyond him? I think part of it is his look. Mm, well, Simon, yeah. Simon Pegg's got a much more marketable look, realistically, hasn't he? You know, he's he's a handsome dude who he's slim, whereas Nick Frost is not that. He looks like a normal bloke, which doesn't translate to Hollywood quite as well. And True. I think I think that is a big reason why. And maybe his style of comedy doesn't quite hit the high notes that a Simon Pegg could. But I would happily watch him in every film ever made because I, I just love the guy. I think he's excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, your number two, please. So I mentioned this not that long ago, to be fair. So it is a, a slight bit of rehashing, so I apologise. But... Um... Mark Sarah and um, and Hill in um, Superbad um, as a, as a pair. So obviously you've got McLovin in that film as well, but he doesn't feature nearly as much. And that's a side arc with obviously the police um, in in his. But the two of them in in this film, they're just they're they're perfectly matched together. They bring this element of like. They want to be frat boys, but they don't. They want to be cool and they want to be in with the girls like teenage lads do at that time, but they're not. They're super uncool. But their performances, it just, it just shows... Every, I mean, if there was anything to my, kind of show us how this side of the continent and, and Americans, when you're a teenage boy, cross some of the same things happen to you in school, 
doesn't matter where you are in the world, you're always going to have these kind of things that go wrong and you'll always do stupid stuff to try and impress girls. Um, <laughs> and the way that they, that like what these two get into is just hilarious, but completely believable at the same time. Like when Jonah Hill's character gets like period blood on him, he's got to be what, and then he starts dry heaving. Like Sam was laughing her head off and I was literally like in tears with it as well. And then um, when Michael Sarah's character has to start singing to like to get him out of that, um, like those the, the, the people that think he's like someone's little brother or something, <laughs> and, and but then he's like his voice breaks as he's singing. Oh my god, it's so good! It's just it's silly stuff. It's like it's nothing like slapstick. It's nothing big and bombastic, but it's those little touches that that take it to a to a new level. And it's it's just a wonder. I mean, Superbad in general is just a wonderful film. Filled with a lot more heart than you would think for a film that uses the word dick, pussy, and cock as much as it does. Um, but it really is just a wonderful story about boyhood to adulthood mm. that, you know, a lot of us have experienced, maybe not to the extremes of, that they do, but, you know, that's probably why it hits home is even more funny because it's it's realistic and it's, it's relevant to us. Mm. I mean, you, you could have had the non-realistic... Um, in Seth Rogen's officer, is it Mike or something like that? Um, because that that whole character is absolutely ridiculous. Oh yeah, uh, mm. the whole the whole thing about the weed and the guns and everything about him. You could have you could have put him in this, and it'd been absolutely fine. Because I, mm. I after you mentioned it last week or the week before, I went to, I went back and found it, and I, I watched it in the middle of the afternoon when I'd finished early. But yeah, hundred percent stands up. <laughs> As much now as he did then, maybe even more. Mm, it is excellent, and like that formula has been replicated time and again, and some successfully, some less than successful. One of the successful ones, which was going to be an honourable mention, is actually Jonah Hill's sister, um, Beanie Feldstein, in Booksmart, which is obviously Beanie and Catelyn Diva playing a pair of very similar characters to to Jonah Hill and. Uh, Michael Sarah in that and getting into similar sort of shenanigans and they've just brought it right up to it was 2019 it was released so it feels very much up to date and what you'd expect from it so it's a great story that is open for those type of shenanigans but I do think that Superbad is like the the pinnacle of, of those type of films and it's of all the act- Go on. I was going to say, of all the actors to get two mentions on this list, Jonah Hill is not one I thought it would be. <laughs> That's true. I don't know which came first, um, not the chicken or the egg, whether it was the in-betweeners or super bad. And obviously the two go hand in hand as those kind of, you know, uh, what teenage boys go through, through school and leaving school and everything else. But those two programs, like culturally, they'll never get the res- like. So the in-betweeners will never get the respect that something like only fools and horses or faulty towers mm. or porridge or anything else will get, but it absolutely culturally should be up there in terms of the best that this country's produced in terms of comedy, because it changed that it changed vocabulary. The in-betweeners mm. did. Um, and I don't think that, you know, just because com- just because comedy, can can be sweary doesn't mean it's not any less culturally impactful. Getting on my high horse a little bit about this because I feel very passionate about the in-betweeners. No, I completely <laughs> agree. 
especially because Only Fools and Horses is dog shit. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think in between is it definitely deserves <laughs> to be on a pedestal. It's just such a... It's fucking so, terrible. It's the broadest nonsense ever. It's just, no. Yeah, but he, no. if it was made now, then yeah, but it's old. It's very old. That's the point. He's, he's a modernist, yeah. isn't he? Um, yeah, but it's moved on. That thing is comedy's moved on. So you yeah, still have to judge it by the standards that you're watching it now. You take it for no, 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 no. Yeah, you can you can judge it by what it was. If you want to judge it like that, and everything from about 1992 and before was all shit. But you can't. It's you got to just judge it for that. I mean, I can't sit down and watch porridge because I've never found porridge funny at all. But that's because I'm 38 years old. I'm not 58. It wasn't made for me, was it? So. But then, but only for, some only fills and horses. I, I really love some some of the older older stuff. Don't get it. It but and it really hasn't aged well at all. Um, but again, this is why Mrs. Brennan's boys is so popular, isn't it? So well, it, it it appeals to like the lowest common denominator, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I hope you're ready for your second bit of Wang of the evening. But also in Phil Wang's audiobook, he talks about uh, Mind Your Language. I don't know if you're aware of Mind Your Language. Uh, it was like a, a show back in the late 70s about uh, a night class of people trying to speak English, but it was full of the most stereotypical versions of every ethnic group in Britain <laughs> at the time. Um, so, you know, the, the Chinese woman in there um, was always talking. She had a communist handbook, and she was always talking about Emperor Mao, and um, would all every single L and R was reversed in her script. Mm, okay. Um, the Italian was a womanizer and a perv at that. Everything was as you expect it to be. The Japanese guy was completely straight laced in a Tokyo business suit and was all ha ha. Do you know what I mean? It was everything was expected yeah. to be, and it's like it's like now it's used throughout the land on every BBC documentary you can think of for how re- racist television was back in the day, or xenophobic in this case. Um, but actually, Phil Wang was saying about how um, they love it in other countries, the countries that are having the piss taken out of them. They still love it now. Like mind your language now is being re re um, circulated in Malaysian television. And it's got huge ratings. And I just think it's like incredible that actually sometimes when it comes to stuff like this, it's, it's are people, are people looking to be offended mm-hmm. more so than, you know, because the, 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 so Phil Wang's dad ends up saying something along the lines of you, you defeat something as horrible as racism by laughing at it. And the British characters in there or the English characters in the show get taken the piss out of, just as much as everybody else and it's like it's almost like a communal everybody's a dickhead in this in this show i think it's really interesting that like comedy is used sometimes as a platform for um you know shedding boundaries even though a show like this looks like it's just massively racist um it's it's a good kind of character study to look back at it and you know you you might be horrended by her uh, really find it horrendous and think this is god this is awful like how can they how can they be so shallow-minded about people but actually when you when you talk to the people that are being um ridiculed in inverted commas mm. they love it absolutely love it bizarre yeah. it's um i just said look 42 episodes 1977 to 86 it's got an 8.7 out of 10 on imdb <laughs> and this is exactly the same thing that i've said before about love thy neighbor 
where I, the first time I, I heard of Love Thy Neighbour was a mate at uni giving, him, giving me the box set of it. Bear in mind, he's a black man from North London <laughs> giving me the box set of it because his mom grew up watching it here and she absolutely loves it because all the people, all the, the white people, the white idiots are idiots and they're stupid and it completely back, they're calling each other everything all under the sun, as you can imagine. But because it goes both ways, and it always, always, every single episode ends up with a white man losing every week. And yet the language is bad, obviously. The situations are bad, obviously, by modern standards. But the actual, how to say, the actual themes of the show are that, yeah, this racist moron next door always loses out. <laughs> and not just because he's a racist moron, because he, he's just... He doesn't know any better. Is how he's grown up, but that is that is weird. Because I'd never heard this of this one. I'll try and see if I can. Looking on there, you can't find it. Like you can't find Love Thy Neighbor. You'd think nowadays you'd have it on Brickbox with a warning at the start, just for like heritage reasons and mm. for that for, because it's history. It's still history, however unnecessary, and you couldn't put this on now. <laughs> like, I remember when they took it off UK Gold. Because it was on there for years. I mean, you, that's you're talking what late nineties. They were still showing it there. But again, it was the the people who were being people thought were being mocked were the ones who love it for that reason. And it's probably like Heidi High as well. Hmm. I wonder if there's an element of we look back at these programs from the the seventies and assume we, they weren't as um, cultured as we are. So we can tell those jokes now because we do it with satire, but mm. they couldn't. But maybe they did have satire and stuff back then and they, they knew what they was doing. But obviously not being there, it's difficult to really know what the ins and outs of it were. But I do wonder if there is some kind of, as, as you mentioned earlier, some kind of like a comedic snobbery towards this, this type of comedy out there. I, I don't know. Mm. It is interesting though. Mm. Uh, Stu, your number two, please. Yeah, talking of comedic snobbery, um, <laughs> this is. Well, I've, I've mentioned this film before, only in the last two years. Um, we got this on. I met Harp downloaded it because he was the only one with broadband at the time. It obviously <laughs> wasn't released over here. Um, we had no way of getting hold of it, and it's Rip Torn and Tom Green in Freddie Got Fingered, and <laughs> again. Absolutely ludicrous nonsense, completely out there. But it's a, a father-son relationship of a father who hates his son because he's such a twat, and because he's he's such a loser. I mean, the, the daddy would you like some sausages thing? He sucked the sausages on strings and the piano, and I mean, there's moments like that. There, it's again like we talked about with um, Vampire's Kiss, where it's so memed, and people don't necessarily know what the memes are from or the gifts are from. It's just this complete mad, complete madness, and this is one that I am not going to watch for a long time because I I've watched this about five times in my entire life, and every single time my head has hurt from laughing at it that much <laughs> because it's so it's so stupid. And I think in the end I did end up getting a Canadian DVD of it um, because they didn't sell it over here. They probably you probably yeah. get it. You probably get it now, but. Back then, I, you couldn't find it. I'm sure I had it on VHS. There must have been a pal copy of VHS because that's how I saw it. it was on VHS. 
So yeah, I'm not pal. Is it is it pal in the UK? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I had a pal copy of it from our price. That's how yeah, far price, back yeah. we're <laughs> 2001, the film was released, but obviously it, it was never shown in UK cinemas, was it? No. Because there was such a furore about it. I remember like every few years, there's always a movie that comes out that is the worst movie that's ever been made. Like For some reason, I always remember the one with um, the All Saints girls in Honest. Um, that was the worst film that was ever made. That was like was it 2004 or something. But yeah, Freddie Got Fingered in 2001 when it was released was the worst film that's ever been made. <laughs> and, and it really wasn't. Like, don't get me wrong, it's not the best film that's ever been made. But it is just a really dumbest rocks comedy. <clears throat> it's sort of like, it's very much of the jackass generation. I think it yeah. fits perfectly with that era of comedy. And yeah, yeah. It's dumb as shit, but I, I did enjoy it. <laughs> Have you seen that one, Matt? Well, Freddie Got Fingered? Yeah. I saw it like way, way, way back in the day. But like when when kind of Freddie Got Fingered and the whole, f- like the, that frat thing, like American Pie and everything came out, um, hmm. I was very much of the, I'm not watching Friends because I'm into Limp Biscuit and we don't watch that kind of shit. <laughs> so I think like at the time, like that, it was it was it wasn't quite my bag. And then it, it took it took years for me to get out of that. It's like I was I put on Twitter the other day, like because of silly ideas of of, of masculinity, I never got into My Chemical Romance, and actually I realised they're they're tremendous. Yeah. Um, and then other bands as well that like because I was so like two-footed into the culture that I was in at the time. There were certain things I never just got into and, and, and like, Freddie got fingered and that was, at the time, just one of those things. Yeah, this That's is like when we were talking earlier in the in the, um, in the pub and they were mocking me for saying Aquarium's a great album. Because, I mean, the, the, the hits on there, in context of, of a ni- this 90s festival that's happening um, in November, and you had things like, you had... Eiffel 65 really one song. Um, 911 barely one song. Um, an aqua headline in it. And you said, well, okay. But you have Barbie Girl, you have My Oh My, you have. But then you have proper things like Turn Back Time, which is a great song. It's an actual great song from Sliding Doors, which no one can ever mock that. In that context, I thought, I love that album and I played it to death and I don't care. But if I was in that kind of mindset, and I thought I would never listen to Aqua Aquarium back in the day, <laughs> but I did. Eurovision was last night, Stu. We've got to put that kind of music to bed now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they had hits. I'll give them that, but they they weren't good. Anyway, um, honourable mentions. I've got five Jackass. We've spoke about it at length on other podcasts. It's fucking great. And the, the most recent one, I think, um, Johnny Knoxville is just wonderful as this. This captain stood on a sinking ship still. And I love the way that they just, he was their father figure in the, in the movie, in the way they treated him. It was really done, really well done. Even though I know it wasn't scripted, brilliant. Um, Peter Capaldi in, in the loop and in the thick of it where he plays Malcolm Tucker, such a phenomenal character that, I think even people who've never watched either of those things know that character because it's su- such a strong one that seems to cross boundaries. Tracy Morgan in 30 Rock, the only TV show I've got on the list. Love it. 
great. He's a tour de force in that. He's so good. Everyone else is a little bit silly, but he's like dialed up to 11. Like he's that off the wall. Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona. What a film. I, I'm kind of ashamed that I hadn't watched that film until fairly recently. Just brilliant. And I've got Trey Parker and Matt Stone for South Park and Team America World Place. I know you don't see them, so they're not acting in, in that terms. So it's difficult to really give them a... to say how good the comedic performance was because there was no physicality to it, obviously. But those are two of the funniest films I've ever seen. There's only one film which I find funny, which is my number one. But South Park, the first film, I've never laughed so much in a <laughs> cinema as when they did Uncle Fucker. Like, I was in tears, like, falling out of my seat. It was so funny. Uh, I think the, the only reason to, it's just because it's animated is that it hasn't made it onto my top five, personally. Matt, have you got any honourable mentions? Yeah, I do. One that toyed and and with the the top five, um, and it, it got got bumped in the end for Anchorman. Um, would have been the performance of of, of the two leads in Bad Neighbours. So, um, oh. Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne. Byrne, am I pronouncing that right? Byrne. Yeah. Byrne. Yeah. Um, I really love this film. I really do. It's 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 that weird mix of like. The, the, the two leads, well, not the two leads, because I suppose Zac Efron is the other lead, I suppose, but, the, you know, the, the couple who want to stay cool and stay hip, but also need an early night competing with the frat party and, like, the, 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 the chaos that comes in between them. But it's just a really great and unappreciated gem, I think. And I think, it, it, like, from a, from, from a purely commercial standpoint, it was, like, 18 million budget and worldwide raked in about 260 million. It was like Rogan's, I think, his highest grossing film, like, ever. Um, and it was, it's just a really hilarious, under-the-radar film that I don't think people give the time of day for. Because I, I think he had that Zack and Miri make a porno, he had this. He had a couple of others that, like, just existed but never made it mad mainstream. Mm. Um and and this is one of those. But if you've not seen it, you you you're giving yourself a disservice because it's very very funny, very funny. Um, and the other one that it's not because this isn't a great film, but it's one of just so many of this genre. But it's the one that means the most to me would be Airplane. It's just there's so many of them in the world, and Airplane was just it was just fantastic. It was it's it's so stupid but so funny. Mm. Nothing's come close to airplane, like all the scary movies and that. That they try, but they fail miserably because airplane stands apart from everything else. The only one that comes close is Repossessed. Fucking loved Repossessed. That's brilliant. I've not seen that. I've not seen Repossessed. It's another Leslie Nielsen based on The Exorcist. Is the the, mm. the vague um, outline to it? But yeah. Hot fantastic. shots part two. Oh god, yeah, that that was a good one. Yeah, so there, there there is a few. Um, I was saying, I I think Bad Neighbours has got a different name everywhere else other than here. I think it's I think, just Neighbours. Yeah, like I think it was Neighbours. So that was the same for other people that if you want to try and find it, then you might have to look for something else. Obviously, we know why that was changed here because of as in Australians. Um, mm. But yeah, again, that when when you were talking about earlier about um, a top five like, underrated films. 
that was one that I was thinking of straight away because no one ever talks mm-hmm. about it. Everyone always always goes to like Step Brothers and that kind of thing with in the kind of home setting. But yeah, Bad Neighbors slash Neighbors is never talked about ever, so no one's seen it. But they clearly have because it made so much money. Yeah, <laughs> weird. And I hadn't seen it until about three years ago. Like I never saw it at the cinema or anything, which is odd because I love Seth Rogen. But yeah, for some reason, never got around to it. Yeah. Mm. I'd mention Shoe. Uh mine was I had Leslie Nielsen in Naked Gun trilogy. <laughs> um so again, yeah. airplane, very similar. Um you said about the you don't like the scary movie films. I had Anna Ferris in the scary movie films because I thought she kind of she made a whole career out of them films and she was mm. the, if you want a silly woman, she was the go to person for it <laughs> for a long yeah. time. Anna Faris, for some reason, doesn't get respect, but she's a very good actor. The rest of those films are trash, but she's great in it. Yeah, you are right, yeah. yeah she seems like a nice person as well, which is rare. Um, mm. <laughs> one that I was kind of umming and ahhing about to do it or not, and it, it's, it's Rob Schneider in Juice Bigelow. <laughs> because, <laughs> again, it's, it's of that kind of... Freddie got fingered ear of just absolute nonsense. Um, and obviously the whole thing of Rob Schneider is a carrot and that whole thing that kind of kicked off with, again, probably South Park. I can't remember mm. where that started. But again, I didn't put South Park on there for the same reason that you, you said, because it was animated and you, it's voiceovers. Um, one that I didn't think, cause I didn't think of even putting TV shows on here. So I was stretching it a bit with, Rick and Aid in Guestes Paradiso, just to say I could put bottom in, but you can't really because mm. it's not a great film, um, even though they are the same characters, really. Yeah, yeah. And obviously Fantastic. the other one, the, there was one more that was The Room, but that's unintentional. <laughs> yeah. Right, number one. <clears throat> it's a first ever. All three of us have got the same number one. Have we really? Wow. We really have, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So, Matthew, would you like to do the honours? Thank you very much. What an honour it is. I think the reason... <laughs> I think the reason that Borat... <laughs> I think the reason that Borat, Learnings of America for Make Benefit, Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, is up there, and Borat as a character, is for the following reasons. Number one, it's ball-achingly funny. Like, it's just funny as a physical ha-ha comedy, right? It's funny. Number two, it's massively, massively quotable. So it's still quoted to this day. Loads of people quote it. Number three, it takes the piss out of idiots in real life, which everybody (laughs) loves to see. And number four, it's steeped in satire. Mm. And it's steeped in actual... um, Relevant to the time, obviously, because of when it was made. But things that were going on, um, mix all of those things in one big smelting pot, and you've got something that is just incredibly funny. Incredibly funny that ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of people. Joe Bloggs off the street, who loves Mrs. Brown's boys, can watch Borat and enjoy it for just the silliness of it all. Uh, And probably because they're closet racists as well. (laughs) But then... But people that are like a, a even higher brow stuff can enjoy it for how it takes the piss out of rooting toot in America and the far right. 
Um, and, and there's just so much to bore out over the two films. And don't forget the second film. There's an emotionally charged story about mm. female empowerment <laughs> for someone that openly talks about how the Jews planned 9-11. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't get better than that. It just does not get better than that. It, no. It's it's such an incredible, such a ballsy, quite literally, performance as well. Like, you often hear about actors having to go to a, a dark place or something to, to channel that person, but for Sasha Baron Cohen to literally live as that character for days, weeks, months on end is incredible feat of, of, I was trying to think of the term that Nick Cage used in unbearable weight for his style of acting, but just to be that type of an actor is incredible. And when Earthly Man mentions, and I mentioned South Park, the scene where he is fighting with his manager and his manager's got <laughs> balls in his face. I, Gave myself such a stomachache because I could not stop laughing. Like I needed to shit. I was in. I was laughing so much. I was like, I just couldn't stop. I was in. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen in the cinema, without a shadow of a doubt. And then when he gets up and then he has to go down to the the foyer, completely start bollock naked in front of everyone else, in a country which would probably have shot a brown-coloured man to do that anywhere else. But for some reason, he's got a camera crew, so he's okay to get away with it. It's just absolutely astounding. It is such a tour de force of a performance from a comedic genius. And I mentioned that Jack Black probably should have been Oscar-nominated for um, School of Rock. I think Sasha should have probably won an Oscar for his Borat. I thought it was incredible. Um Comedy is very much like horror. It doesn't get the respect it is due at the Oscars, and that is the only reason why in my books. Yeah. I mean, I've I, I told the story before, I think, on here, where we I drank a bottle of red wine before watching this film. Um, <laughs> and we were in the cinema, and it was pretty empty. But as soon as it comes on with the running of the Jews, and you think, this is... I mean, it wasn't even a case of, oh no, it was everyone in that screening was just pissing themselves, and you got to bear in mind as well. I don't know how how far the Ali G show did go around the world at the time, first time round, because it seemed a very very niche late night English thing to watch that it had a certain audience, and the sections with Borat and Bruno. Towards the end, were the better parts of it, <laughs> when Ali G started to be kind of a parody of himself, um, they were the fresh ones because it was still unknown. So going into this thinking, Anna, that there's a whole new audience of idiots for him to exploit, we didn't think he was going to be as funny as it was. And again, like you, Andy, I, I, it it pained me <laughs> physically, mm-hmm. and I have watched it since not drunk. And it's probably even better, which is when you think of comedy like this, it's rare. And I think we all we all appreciated and enjoyed the second one last year. But this was is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece for the ages, and it's. I don't think you had to be there at the time either. I think you could watch it now and think, yeah, these are real people he's talking to, for the most part, and still appreciate what it is, and that is yeah. superb. I, I was genuinely stunned when 
all three of us came up with with Barat independently, <laughs> and yeah, but I, I think that goes to speak to just how fantastic a film it is that he does it stands above everyone else for me. Right, okay, so that's the top five. Don't make sure you send us your top five, your favourite comedic performances. Um, I'm sure you'll have Borat number one as well, because <laughs> why not? <laughs> uh, obviously, get us on the socials at Cage Fighting Pod, emails to cagefightingpod at gmail.com. Um, as I said last time out, if you've got any quizzes or games or anything you want to play, it can either be a two or a three player thing. Uh, drop us an email and let us know. We'll, we'll give it a go. Why not? Uh, next up, we've got a picture pod, and we'll be doing the film that we postponed for us to do, uh, Doctor Strange, and that is Birdie. Um, check justwatch.com to find out where it is streaming in your area. So for this week, Matthew, would you like to say ta Take it easy, everybody. Thank you for uh, joining us on this 100-episode so far journey. No matter where you started, whether you're one of the OGs or you've just started with us, it's a pleasure to have you on board the Good Ship Cage Fighting, so hope we keep you around. Stuart, would you like to say bye-bye? Yeah, uh, I will in a minute. Um, I'm amazed <laughs> that there was so <laughs> there was so little Will Ferrell in this list, this whole thing, Aaron a bit, and he was barely mentioned. Just very odd. I thought it, it, it was nailed on that he'd be, there'd be at least two or three Will Ferrell in this, but apparently not. I mean, my next to Anchorman, my next favourite Will Ferrell film is probably Blades of Glory, but not because of Will Ferrell, because of John Hedder. So like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a huge John, um, not a huge Will Ferrell fan. So he was never going to make my list after to Anchorman. But you, Matt, I can't really remember what we discussed when we did our, our top five Ferrell films. Uh, I like I, I like Phil. I really do. Um, and the only the other, the other guys is probably even I'll probably enjoy that probably more than Anchorman. But um, in terms of like an ensemble cast, I wanted to get a big ensemble cast in my top five. If I'm honest, mm. um, yeah, I, I think you've got to be in the mood for that though with Ferrell. Like yeah. I couldn't watch Mr. Bean every day, and I don't think I could watch Will Ferrell every day, but. The odd thing is, when I asked Sam, I was like, what's in your top five comedic performances? Bang, without saying anything. She was like, Daddy's home too. Like, she didn't, I didn't need to, like, she was yeah. like, she was like, Lifko. She, she, she didn't know it was called Lifko, but I did. But uh, she was, I was like, <laughs> she was like, and his dad. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Because actually, for it is really funny. He is really funny in that as well. And But you do kind of get that Will Ferrell in everything he does, nearly everything he does. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've got a lot of time for Ferrell, but you've got to be in the mood, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. So, live, laugh, love. Ta-ra. <laughs> it's goodbye from me, Andrew Member. Be excellent to each other. Wow, 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 wow. It's very nice.